On this episode of This Week in Linux, the show is back after a brief hiatus, and this episode is jam-packed with awesome Linux canoes. Valve announced a game-changer with a new Steam Play for Linux with Proton. UbiPorts has released a big update for Ubuntu Touch. Flatpak has reached version 1.0 milestone with lots of cool new features to offer. We check out some distro news from Lubuntu, Bodhi Linux, and Kali Linux. Then later in the show, we take a look at new app releases for for a new music player, a note-taking app, and then a lot of news for some video editing software. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital, and this is your source for Linux GNU's. Up first in the show this week is Steam for Linux, or Steam Play for Linux. And this is some exciting news, like ridiculous exciting news. You probably you might have heard of it because it's everywhere at this point, but if you haven't, the Steam for Linux no Steam Play thing uh, adds the ability to use uh, wine, well, custom wine, really. It's a, a custom wine called Proton that allows you to play Windows games in Linux. Now, these are not necessarily like going to make all Windows games work automatically, but it has a lot of games working, surprisingly, based on the community involvement and stuff like that. But if you haven't heard about it, Proton is a tool for making the Windows games work on Linux. And now this is more like, um, it doesn't work make everything work, but depending on like the, the way it's developed, whether like what version of DirectX it's using, which is currently, I think, 9, 11, and 12. I don't think 10 is working yet, but they, they might be making those in the future. But it allows you to play games that are specifically made for Windows and not for Linux, but still get them to work on Linux. And that is fantastic, both in multiple ways, because it could be utilized to make games that are not Steam games, because Proton is not specific to Steam. And it also makes it possible that games or just regular applications could use Proton to work with Linux. So that's pretty cool, I like the potential it has there. Now, this news is ridiculous and awesome, so it's hard to like kind of like gauge exactly how like just to express how great it is. But one of the things that it's really cool that I found out was the support that it started with that Steam and Valve announced. They said like they gave you a list of games that they have whitelisted that say they work for sure, no problem. That's about twenty-seven games. And now there's a list in the show notes that if you want to go check it out, you can uh, find the link on uh, TouchDigital.com. But the what's really cool about it is that it's not just Steam that's testing these games. It's the whole community has jumped, has stepped up and like jumped in and has been testing a ridiculous amount of games. And so far, we, there's there's at least over a thousand games that have been tested and confirmed to work with Proton. Now there are also other games that have been tested and are not really confirmed yet, but these have been confirmed at least by one person or so that they are working completely with with a proton. Now there are some you know there's some caveats to that saying that they you know it doesn't guarantee that all hardware is going to work with it, but it's potential that it could. So if you haven't tried it out, you and you are a gamer or you're interested in gaming anyway, you should definitely check out Proton uh, because it's it's you know anyway I'm looking forward to it. Uh, unfortunately, turns out I don't really have any Windows games that are only Windows games. Most of the games I have, I have like three games that are not supported on Linux, so I don't have anything to test it with, so I'm going to have to go buy a game that's not 
Linux based because you know the whole no tux no bucks that's pretty much how I've always been so I have to now go get a game that might work and test it and you know well anyway still amazing that it goes from 27 to a thousand within a week that is awesome uh, and another thing that's kind of cool I mean it's kind of like this is a little bit um, rude to the Mac users but I find it amusing and enjoyable and that uh, when there was a question asked to the, the Valve team if Mac OS was going to be supported by this new Proton thing, they said no. They, it's just Linux is the sole focus for the Steam Play functionality. And that is fantastic. So a lot of people, when they asked about the Mac OS support, they were kind of disappointed that they didn't have it. And I understand the disappointment because you want the benefits as well if you are a Mac user. But I just want to point out, this is kind of Apple's fault. So... In order to make Proton work, they have Wine and Vulkan support to to do like uh, API transitions and stuff like that for uh, DirectX. So in order to have a conversion, they have DirectX calls being converted into Vulkan calls, which are then being just uh, utilized inside the Linux system. But there's really not any Vulkan in macOS. There is there's technically molten, which is a it's it's metal plus Vulkan API bridge thing. So essentially, in order to have macOS support in the same way that Linux is getting it, would be metal to to molten to Vulkan to DirectX. So instead of DirectX to Vulkan, so that's why it makes it much more difficult for Mac users to get it. So you might want to consider replacing your Mac OS with Linux. Just an idea. Now, just, you know, there is a specific thing. We point out that some people have argued that because of this happening, some developers might not want to do Linux, like native Linux support, and they would just use this as like a, a bridge to solve that problem. But they, you could say that that's a negative, but also I would like to say that it, it could be a positive too because of the sense that these applications or these games might not have never come on Linux at all. So like this is a bridge, yes, but it also could be a bridge to more gradual development. So if the, once they you know, start looking at how to, how to make it work on Linux through this port or this bridge system, then they would be kind of getting like introduced to Vulkan because Valve said that if you want to have your game supported through the system and you're not looking to do native, you need to make it with Vulkan, and that would make it more likely to work. So getting them gradually looking at Vulkan and getting them realizing why it's good to have that API, it might make them more likely to utilize Vulkan and then therefore more interested in using native application or native development for games. So there's a lot of potential for this to be fantastic, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with this, and I'll keep you up to date with all the new stuff that's coming with it. So, you know, subscribe if you'd like to find out more about that. Next up in the show is Ubuntu Touch Over the Air 4 release. Now, this is a uh, update to Ubuntu Touch from the UbiPorts team. If you're not aware that a long time ago that Ubuntu Touch was created by Ubuntu, but they decided not to continue making it. However, it was picked up by the UbiPorts team, so there is a community involvement now of creating Ubuntu Touch and keeping it up to date and making it 
you know, available for people who would like to use Ubuntu Touch on their phones rather than Android or iOS. Or, well, basically just Android because it only works on Android phone, but still. So after about eight months of work, they have resolved over 128 issues and have done uh, like big jumps between like the cute version of 5.4 and 5.9. They've done this by upgrading the core base system from 1504 to 1604 so that it has an LTS supported release. Now this is, you know, you might be thinking, well, 1804 is out now, and you're like, yeah, but it's in the sense of the phone support, there's, the, having the core base system doesn't necessarily need to be constantly up to date with the Ubuntu core, but it should totally be an LTS. That way the security updates and all those things are available. And they, since now that they are on the 1604 base, they're, they've got all the benefits of having all these different uh, security updates and things like that. And they've also added some new power saving features as well. So if you're interested in checking out a, you know, a freedom respecting, for the most part, because it does have to use some of the Android utilities, but for the most part, um, version of, of software to, or operating system for your phone, definitely check out Ubuntu Touch uh, over the air if you have a supported device like the Nexus 5 or Nexus 4 or uh, one of the BQ phones or um, you know things like that. Um, unfortunately, there are some issues with the Nexus 5, like the camera app is not working properly, but for the most part, it still works. So if you're interested, you know, give it a shot. Up next in the show is Flatpak 1.0 is released. And this is like the first milestone, like big major milestone for Flatpak. And this has got, it's got a lot of cool improvements to the, the infrastructure of it. Now this has been, Flatpak has been in development for a couple of years now, like about three years almost. And they've done a lot of good stuff that, uh, you know, it's it, basically the idea is to have a universal format that you could have an application and not really matters what distro you're using. And you can just install the application and get up-to-date versions and stuff like that. Now, they've recently made it possible to have updated versions that will have automatic updating, which is fantastic. And But this one also provides a, a really interesting app permission system. So you can choose what to like provide permissions to the system or to the applications. I mean, I'm not really sure like how far it goes and how, you know, how many times it asks you and how many different things that it asks you for. Cause I haven't been able to, I haven't found a plat pack that has that yet. So I'll have to do some more testing to figure it, to figure, like find the, the full list of things you can do. But what's really cool is that these permission systems allows you to install an application and choose not to um, have certain permissions. So if you want to have an application, but you don't want to allow it to have access to your Bluetooth device, you know, that's, you don't, you can choose not to do that. I'm not sure how, you know, modular these permissions are set up to be. So you, maybe you could have, uh, like, let's say for example, uh, Android has a system that's similar to this where you can have app permissions, but if you say no to any of them, you can't use the application at all. And we don't know exactly like how far, you like if everything in Flatpak can be dis they can say no to or just like a couple. So you know once we have some more app some more Flatpaks that are you know having these these implemented, we'll be able to test to see how far it goes. Another thing that's really cool about it is that it allows these the more it allows the new portal system to allow it to create sandboxes for the individual flat packs and also like auto restart the flat packs after updating. 
So there's a lot of cool, you know, benefits that flat packs are adding. Now there are there are other, you know, universal formats you should be aware of, like snaps and app images. So it, you know, check those out too if you haven't tried them out. Uh, but uh, one thing I did want to kind of mention that was kind of weird in the sense that it, there's a new permission system that grants access to X11, so like the X server, and it kind of makes me wonder, you know, what what would the reaction be to someone who's just now using Linux and they and they just they've heard about this Flatpak thing and they started installing Flatpaks and then they're starting to ask questions that they don't really know what any of it means. Like how far do these these permission systems go? And in X11 seems like it'd be a pretty important thing to be asked for permissions for. So I don't know. I'm just I'm curious to see what happens there. And uh, if you have tested out these the new features of the new bad permissions, let me know in the comments below. Uh, what your experience was, because I'd be definitely interested in knowing that. Also this week, Lubuntu has announced that they will be switching to Wayland on the release of 2010. So October 2020 is when Lubuntu has decided that they will be switching to Wayland. And it's really cool about how they're doing it, because they're, instead of, like, there's a there's an issue with Wayland, is that it is a protocol for a display server, but it doesn't have a compositor built into it. Like they have a sample compositor called Weston, but it's not really a production ready compositor and it's not intended to be. It's more like a like a like proof of concept type thing. So most DEs would have to provide their own compositor. Now some of them already do have that. For example, GNOME has Mutter and that has a compositor for Wayland. And KDE has uh, Quinn or KWIN. The the Quinn uh, window manager also has a compositor for it for that supports Wayland, so it doesn't need anything else. But a, all the other DEs or window managers might not have full support for Wayland. So what Lubuntu has decided to do is that they're going to use uh, OpenBox and make it work with Mir. The the you might not, you might be going what Mir? What do you mean? Well, Mir is the former display server from Canonical, uh, but they, they when they announced that they were going to not continue Unity and they were going to switch to GNOME, they didn't discontinue Mir. In fact, they actually kind of like changed what Mir is. So Mir is now becoming a compositor for Wayland. So it's more like a universal solution that other DEs could utilize as a compositor for Wayland. So it allows... Like for example, OpenBox or something else to like Mate and LXQt to have Wayland support without having to like build it themselves in the DE. They can use Mirror to accomplish that. And that is a really cool concept because having all these different like it kind of would create a fragmentation issue if all these different uh, desktop environments had their own compositing solution, and then there'd be like a potential for uh, breakpoints of different applications depending on what compositor is there. So it's a really cool idea that if they're using one that's more like a universal solution. So I look forward to that. Now you might be wondering, you know, what about is Wayland ready to go? Right now the answer is no, definitely not. I mean, it's some people have hardware that can make it work fine. Like if you have an AMD processor, an AMD graphics card, you're fine. You're good to go. It'll probably work for the most part. Now, not everything, because it's still there's still a little bit of things that are not ready yet. But overall, it's pretty much it's most really for for those those types of hardware. But if you use an NVIDIA graphics card, no, it's not not really even close. But its potential 
by the time that you know this release of 2020 or 2010 comes out that it could be ready at that time to utilize Wayland. So they're kind of like saying this is what our plans to be uh, plans to do are. They're not really saying that this is like a set in stone type thing, but in the future, I guess maybe it could change depending on what happens with Mir and Wayland. Um, so you know, it's just interesting to see what happens, and I'm, I'm just I think it's really cool that they're you know letting you know that they're going to be doing this, and maybe because it, it potentially might get other DEs and other distros to say, hey, we'll check out this Mir thing because maybe it's a solution for the uh, compositor on Wayland. So. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more, you can check out the link in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the Linux Mint Debian Edition release for LMDE3 or Cindy. And if you haven't heard about it, so Linux Mint has a Ubuntu-based version and also a Debian-based version. The Debian-based version has a couple months or so after the, the initial release of the Ubuntu-based version. And now they're having the, the, all the, like most of the work that they were done, we were doing for the previous version of Cinnamon and things like that being added to the Debian release. And this release has uh, a lot of updates to the core of Debian and a lot of uh, updates to Cinnamon, but we've already talked about the new new features of Cinnamon and things like that, so uh, if you, I'll have a link to the previous episode of the show where it has the, that information if you'd like to learn more about that. But if you haven't... There, this kind of thing is, is interesting because I wanted to talk about the, the fact that they have this and kind of like the like the mixed messaging and like why do they have this kind of thing? Because most of the effort they put into it is Ubuntu, is the Ubuntu-based version for Linux Mint. And when I was looking on the, the the news and updates for this particular release, they said like it has the the site has a statement that basically says its main goal is for the Linux Mint team to see how viable their distribution would be and how much work it would be necessary if Ubuntu was ever to disappear. So this LMDE version aims to be as similar as possible to Linux Mint with Ubuntu, but just without Ubuntu and using Debian instead. Now, the reason why that's confusing is because, or to me anyway, is because this LMDE has been around for like seven years and it should have had enough time to figure out if it's viable or not and you know how much work it is. So I'm just kind of curious, like, why do they still have it, or why have they not changed like their reasoning for it? And you know, it's just an interesting topic. I, I, you know, just wanted to put out there and see if there's any kind of feedback from the either the Linux Mint team or you know the, the contributors to it, or you know, just community in general. So let me know in the comments below what your opinion is about that. Next up in the show is Kali Linux. 2018.3 was released. If you're not aware, Kali Linux is a pen testing distribution for ethical hackers. It allows you to uh, test different networking systems and uh, pen do penetration testing to see if you can uh, break through a particular system. It is definitely not recommended to be utilizing this without permission of that network because that would be illegal. So if you were going to do this, if you wanted to try it out, you know, test it on your own your own network or with the permission of people you'd be testing for. Anyway, one of the cool things about this new version, well, probably the coolest thing about this new version, is the addition of a pen testing tool for iOS. So you can actually start doing some uh, you know, researching for the iOS mobile platform, doing pen testing and bug hunting and things like that. Another cool feature that they added is the Kerberos uh, tool for the uh, Kerberos network assessment stuff. 
And they've also added features for Kerberos to support the Datasploit framework. So, and there's also a few, you know, bug fixes and other enhancements for this particular release. And I just thought it was pretty cool for the, the iOS thing because that's a, an interesting addition to the distribution. So if you're interested in checking that out, uh, be sure to check out uh, Kali Linux 2018.3. And to note, if you do decide to use Kali Linux, it is not meant to be a daily driver. So don't use it for a daily driver. It is meant to be a pen testing tool and then uh, that is a uh, companion to your daily driver system from another different distribution. Uh, there is, if you if you are currently using Kali as your daily driver, uh, look into switching that up a little bit because uh, there I've heard a lot of people who do that, and there's a Q and A system, Q and A page on Kali Linux that says you probably shouldn't do that. So just so you know. Also, this week another in other distro distro release news is Bodhi Linux 5.0 is released. This is a new version of Bodhi Linux that is based on Ubuntu 18.04 instead of the previous 16.04 version. So this is a really interesting distribution because it has their custom desktop environment called Moksha, which is a fork of Element or it's a fork of Enlightenment. Um, actually, Enlightenment version 17 they forked at that point. So. If you don't, if you are a fan of Enlightenment, but you don't like the late, the newest versions of like 22 and stuff like that, then Moksha would be a good option for that. And it's a very lightweight desktop environment, and is kind of designed to be like for older hardware, but at the same time still be modern enough. And then also, Bony Linux 5.0 has enhancements to their network stack, and a whole new look based on the Arc Dark theme for GTK structure. Uh, but they have changed a little bit. They've added the Bodhi Linux green color scheme to it, so it's not just like the default arc dark. They've also done some new login and boot splash screens that have like totally customized that part, so they're going to do more of like a polish update as well. So if you're interested in checking out the Moksha desktop or just Enlightenment, like a you know Enlightenment style desktop, and you want to use an Ubuntu-based system, you should definitely give it a chance and check out. Bodhi Linux 5.0. Up next in the show is some unfortunate news, and that is T-Mobile and AT&T had some data breaches. The first one is a data breach between, they basically had the same kind of problem with AT&T and T-Mobile having the PIN codes of customers being uh, vulnerable to attack. Uh, so if you think that, you know, maybe they, I guess T-Mobile and AT&T were feeling left out of the all the data breach information this year, so they want to like, let's join in that. Yeah. So anyway, there's a not so bad, and you know, it's not not terrible because the pen stuff is, you know, you could change your pen. It's not that big a deal. Unfortunately, T-Mobile got hacked a little bit more, and they lost two million uh, customers' personal data. Now there's some a little bit of a silver lining to it, but uh, not much of one. So the customer's name. The billing zip code, phone numbers, email address, account numbers, account type, which is prepaid or postpaid, all of that was included in these two million customers' data stolen um, hack. So, yeah, the silver lining is that the credit card numbers weren't included, but that's about it. So, still pretty bad. You might want to. I don't know what you could do about this, honestly. Like change your email address, I guess, but there are all the rest of the stuff. It's very hard to change. So just letting you know that happened. 
So moving on to something that's actually good, and that is KDE Plasma available on the Pinebook, which is an ARM-based laptop. Now, this is pretty cool because the Pinebook is a pretty, not a super high-end computer, and Plasma being working on it is really cool because it means that Plasma's working on like pretty good on ARM, and um, that's a fantastic thing. And if you haven't heard of the Pinebook, the Pinebook is really cool because it's a two gig RAM, fourteen um, inch la- uh, display laptop that has a quad core sixty four bit ARM processor. Now, what's probably the best thing about it is that it's only a hundred dollars to get this laptop. So. That is very cool. What's not so cool is that you gonna have to wait. Um, you have to pay for the for the product and then wait because they don't do it like you can't just buy it and it ships it because they do it in a a bulk manufacturing process. So they have to have a certain amount of people who have purchased it before they can get the price down low enough to make that one hundred dollars possible. So once once they reach that point, then they go through the process of manufacturing it all and then shipping it out to the customers. So there might be a, I don't know how long the waiting period would be, but it, it's, it's not. There's really no estimate you could possibly do. So, but it's still pretty cool because it's like only a hundred dollars, and you get a pretty cool, pretty fairly powerful laptop for just a hundred dollars. Um, and with it being ARM, the battery life should be crazy. And now you can use Plasma on that Pinebook, so that's pretty cool. And if you already have a Pinebook, you could actually go to the uh, show notes and get the link for the Blue Systems Pinebook remix, remix thing. And you can go ahead and download the ISO for it and try it out uh, on your already existing Pinebook. And then there's also potential that they're going to make it work for other ARM devices. Not really sure exactly like uh, any kind of time frame for that, but if you already have a Pinebook, you can definitely try it out now. So you can find a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is some application news with a new open source music player called Strawberry. And if you haven't heard of it, Strawberry may look familiar for people who have used Clementine because Strawberry is a fork of Clementine. And their purpose of making this fork is to focus on high-quality local music playback. So, for example, Clementine doesn't have support for uh, external DACs. So they wanted to make... Uh, improve Clementine by adding that particular support as well as focusing heavily on local library of music. So with that, they decided to remove the internet features. So Strawberry, Clementine has a few internet solutions like Spotify and things like that and SoundCloud. I don't know if it has full Spotify support, but I know it has some some of it. But it's, it's kind of clunky issues in some of the internet services. So, um, you know... Strawberry decided that they wanted to change that and just focus on local media. Now, personally, I actually prefer to listen to my music locally and not through a streaming service because most of the time, streaming services have random ads all the time. Like every six songs or you know every four to six songs, there's a, an ad that kind of ruins the experience. So I like to throw up some music, uh, listen to the music in like while I'm editing or while I'm programming and stuff like that. So it's just like, you know, get in the groove sort of thing. I don't know. That's anyway. So I like the local version, um, the local approach better. So I'm definitely interested in checking it out. So if you are as well, 
you can find a link to Strawberry in the show notes. Now, also this week, we had some news for Trillium Notes. This is a pretty much a brand new notes-taking app, and they have a lot of cool features and a lot of interesting ideas. If you've ever heard of Simple Note, you'll notice that the UI is kind of similar. Not exactly, but fairly similar. But it is an open-source, self-hosted note-taking app. And it's a really cool concept because they have a lot of custom features that make it fairly powerful. So, for example, they have this thing called Code Notes. And the Code Notes allow you to add code to an individual note and have that code be executed inside of Trillium. So you can kind of create many applications inside of Trillium itself to work with your notes. Really cool concept. So the other thing that they have is the ability to have different implementations of the note system to add extra features through this code note system. So for example, you could go to look at their demos on their GitHub and you'll be able to find that they have a weight tracker system, a family tree, a a note system, a task manager, and even ability to have a script that will automatically import your Reddit comments into like daily note storage. So I'm not sure why you'd want to do that, but the fact that you can is pretty cool. So it's an interesting idea so that you can have Trillium be kind of like an automated system as well as a special custom system depending on what types of notes you want to do. Very cool. Now they store everything in a database, uh, an SQLite database. Right? So it's you might not be able to have like syncing through, you know, something like uh, Nextcloud or anything like that. They have their own custom syncing structure. You might may or may not like that, and you may or may not like that it's uh, electron based. But it's it is cool, and they have a lot of uh, benefits to being electron in the sense that it, it works like cross platform and things like that. But they also uh, there were they did a Q and A on the r slash Linux subreddit, and there was a, co- a few questions that I wanted to bring up. They were asked about their claim about uh, performance and usability. So there's a, it says that on their website or their GitHub says that they have scalability and uh, for usability and performance of up to of hundreds a uh, hundred thousand notes. And this and some of the one of the questions was, how does that make any sense if you have an Electron app and you have scalability and performance? That, that seems kind of like contradictory. But his point was that whether you have a hundred notes or whether you have a hundred thousand notes, the performance will stay basically the same. So it's kind of like it'll scale within itself. So if you're looking for the lightest note-taking app, that's not this. But if you're looking for an incredibly powerful note-taking app that has a lot of cool, innovative ideas like the code note system, then you should definitely check it out. And I definitely have a plan to do that because this this looks pretty cool. Another thing that they they were asked if, if it had markdown support, and instead they said no, it's a WYSIWYG or what you see is what you get type of editor. And I think that's a, a fair point because a lot of times there's in order to have a markdown editor, most of the time they have like a an editing window and then another window next to it that is the preview window of what it would look like. And that's kind of awkward in, to some people, and I totally understand that. So the, the WYSIWYG approach is probably a better solution for note-taking apps like this. So anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this particular application, you can find a link in the show notes for Trillium Notes. Also, this week, 
let's talk about running Windows 95 in an Electron app because you can, I guess. That's pretty much the only reason that this would exist, but it does exist. So if you're interested in trying it, there's a link in the show notes. But what's it's it seems like a novelty, re- and it, it totally is. Never mind. It, not that it seems like it totally is a novelty thing, but it does actually support running other applications inside of uh, this Windows Electron app thing. You could even run an old version of like the original version of Doom and play that inside of this particular uh, Electron app. I'm not sure why you'd want to or anything, but hey, uh, it could be like a nostalgia history thing, learning where we used to be as far as like desktop operating systems. and st- anyway. I'm trying to figure out a reason why this is and uh, for the fun of it, I guess. Anyway, if you wanted to check it out, there's a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is DaVinci Resolve 15 has been released. DaVinci Resolve, if you've never heard of it, is a professional video editor, and it has a lot of other things like video effects and things like that as well. And it has been released for Linux. Now, they've actually had a support for Linux for quite a while, but they, this latest version is the like the full, whole, like major stack update for DaVinci Resolve. So they've added a lot of interesting, cool features, like they've added an entirely new like uh, DaVinci like Fusion page, and this has like 250 tools for compositing and painting and particles and animated titles and all kinds of stuff. So, like as far as feature wise, DaVinci Resolve is a like very heavy featured like powerful video editor. It's it's really interesting and it's a really powerful video editor. But they have some kind of they have some weird issues in the sense of like the, they have a free version, but that free version is is pretty limited. It's not as limited as other ones. Like Lightworks is a really good, powerful video editor, but it's it's got some more limitations, like format, resolution, and stuff like that. But DaVinci Resolve also has some um, some limitations for the free version. And if you would like to get the uh, the paid version, the paid version is three hundred dollars. So it's kind of a big chunk. And if you're not prepared to pay that, that's okay because there's also another option called Pitv. And uh, Pitv is a open source video editor. So if you if that is too expensive, you can check out this one. It's a free open source video editor. And this has a, a new a big update from uh, Harish as the developer. And he's a part of the Google Summer of Code initiative and has made a lot of cool features and updates, such as like improving the... Um, the interface vi- visuals like the video preview preview now has this like easier resizing and also shows you like a visual of like how big that window that preview is compared to the original video size things like that it's a really cool uh, updates and if you haven't tried PitTV it might be worth checking it out uh, I think PitTV has a lot of potential but not might not be there yet but it does have a lot of potential so I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, their future updates also, if you're like another video editor that has a recent update, is Shotcut. And Shotcut is made by the same people who make the MLT framework. And if you've never heard of the MLT framework, it's essentially a fundamental piece that a lot of video editors use. So, for example, Caden Live, which is a very popular video editor, uses the MLT framework. And the Shotcut editor is made by the same people who make that framework. 
So there's a lot like so you can kind of rest assured that it's a solid video editor. There are some issues with the video editor with Shotcut because the default uh, layout of the application just looks like a player rather than an editor. So that's kind of weird. But for the most part, once you switch it, it, it works quite well. There's a lot of user like uh, intuitive UI that it has that I like, uh, like the way to do uh, transitions from one clip to another, like a fade or something. You can just kind of like, just drag the clip, drop it on the other clip, and then bam, it does it. Really cool idea. But uh, there are some quirks and stuff like that, so you should check out the tutorials from the, uh, de the developer to learn more about that. You can find a link to all of these video applications or video editor applications in the show notes below. And finally this week, we'd like to welcome Lenovo to the Linux vendor firmware service because they're now supporting the native firmware updating in Linux. So what this is is basically, uh, thanks to a partnership between L LVFS and Lenovo, they you can now update your firmware for your BIOS and things like that directly in Linux without ever like leave. you have to reboot in order to get it activate pretty much, but you can do it inside of Linux rather than having to like in some cases you some uh, some hardware requires you to boot into Windows to do it, and other cases you can do it through the BIOS and things like that, but you'd have to do it you couldn't do it through your existing system, and that was kind of you know annoying. But now with the, with Lenovo and, and many other vendors as well, but uh, Lenovo is one of the big ones because it has the ability to do it with ThinkPads now because Lenovo makes ThinkPads and everything. So it's really cool that they have joined this and it makes it possible that you can update your firmware through GNOME Software Store and also KDE's Discover is working on making that possible too. So very cool. And, uh, you know, thanks for joining the team, Lenovo. That's it for this episode of This Week in Linux. If you'd like to learn more about all the different topics we have covered in this particular episode, look for the links in the show notes and uh, tuxdigital.com slash twinl35. That's T-W-I-N-L 35 to get the show notes. Or just tuxdigital.com slash thisweekinlinux. Or look in the description right now. Any of those things you could do. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel, we have multiple ways you can contribute, like PayPal, Patreon, and others. You can learn more by going to touchdigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to touchdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. And if you're in Europe, you can go to touchdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere EU. If you'd like some more Linux podcasting from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. You can find more by going to destinationlinux.org. If you didn't know, every episode is recorded live in front of a live studio audience. Okay, not, not a studio audience, it's a Twitch and YouTube audience, but, you know, close enough. And if you'd like to join that audience, we do a live show, uh, usually every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, so you can join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux canoes each week. If you'd like some more information about that, you can go to touchdigital.com slash thisweekinlinux, and you can scroll down to find the time zone converter to find out what the time, the scheduled time for the live stream is in your area. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Donnell with Tux Digital, and as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.